0: if we might, to rise to prayer. I'll ask Brother Brown to lead us in prayer. Father, we're so thankful to be tonight that we have life through thy Son. We thank you that we can gather together because of him. We thank you, Father that you gave us the word that we might know thy truth, and with this knowledge goes the responsibility to make it known to others. Mm-hmm. And we pray that in this we may be found faith. Blessed and permissions our Father, we pray thee, and our brother, as he gives to us thy word, may thy Holy Spirit, we pray thee, glorify thee in this place tonight. In, Jesus name. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, let's just look at verses 23 on um, to 26. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. As we think of the various kinds of justice that can possibly exist, there first of all is what we are so conscious of ourself, individual or private justice. Someone does something against us, and the very thing we think about is a quick reaction. The first thing that happens, get even. It's a reactive justice that takes place within us. Now, that justice is personal. We're not worried about whether someone else is impressed by the matter of justice. We're not worrying about someone else's welfare when we act thus in reaction. We are simply manifesting our personal reaction to what was done to us. And the very first thing that comes into our mind, I've got to settle this account. I've got to get even. And that's a miserable state to be in. And of course, according to the Bible presentation, everyone, apart from the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus, is living more or less in this state. That is, he has individuals that he has accounts against, and he hopes to settle them before he dies. And if the, this life doesn't settle them, then he hopes that the next life will settle them he has an in uh, worked consciousness of reaction shall we say uh, with the intention of evening up his account and isn't it an awful state that most people live in you take the average corporation if you could see all the tensions that exist in that uh, in a given organization one against the other and you can feel the problem. Sometimes you get in a conference where they ought to be discussing the true problems of the company, but really they're fiddling around with men's personal feelings, and people bring up all kinds of arguments, not because of their technical importance, but to manifest their own uh, pride or to settle some account with somebody. I've seen that thing happen more than once. And so apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone has some accounts which he hopes will be settled. And there is that inner feeling of delight apart from Christ when we think that counts are settled. Of course, the trouble is we're never sure they're settled. And the selfish man has a desperate time uh, wondering whether he has really gotten even. And he doesn't feel like he ever does get even. And so there is that restless fullness of, of uh, personal reaction. Now, the characteristic of this type of justice is that it is strictly personal. It does not have to do with our relationships to our fellow men. It is strictly a personal matter against one individual. Another characteristic is it's reactive. The spontaneous thing within us is to equalize by way of injury or inconvenience or of some sort of that nature that shall manifest the true reaction that we feel but the characteristic that we must understand from this is that it is personal and individual another word that's used concerning this is the word retributive and so when we speak about retributive justice we mean an exact and precise equivalent to what was done against us <laughs> this law the world understands very thoroughly because it functions on this law. I'm afraid that corporations function on this law. I'm afraid that just as countries have spies trying to uh, get the jump on one another, so corporations have spies trying to get the jump on one another. And so there's an endless turmoil, and so a Christian couldn't have certain jobs in a a given uh, corporation and whatnot. But the principle is that of exact retribution. So we must characterize our thinking that it is personal. It's a personal reaction that we as individuals seek to calculate what is somebody's due and we seek to reward them as near as we can calculate it with a precise equivalent. And this we call retributive justice. Of course there is no mercy in retributive justice there is a perfect equality of an inconvenience or a suffering or a punishment of some sort but there is no mercy whatsoever we need to have that fixed in mind that when we talk about retributive justice or the justice of exact reaction there is no mercy involved and there cannot be any mercy involved. Personal reaction is satisfied when, according to its estimation, there has been an exact equivalent of the injury. Now bear that very firmly in mind because you are aware, I'm sure, that most of the evangelical theological world think that the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ was made to satisfy the retributive justice of God if so that prominent preacher was right when he said that God is not now exercising any mercy that God's retributive justice has been precisely and exactly satisfied and therefore individuals are supposedly saved or supposedly justified by an exact and calculated equivalent to all their debts, we could take a very unhappy journey of an hour or two to go through all the tragic ramifications of that thinking and if we will be consistent we can end up in absolute fatalism without any difficulty whatsoever That was the thing that broke my heart as a young man in 1928 when my heart was filled with a desire and with a a longing to understand more of the things of God so that I might represent God in the Bible. When I got into some of these involved complications, it simply broke my mental heart, that's all. I saw that there was a cloud beyond which I didn't want to go. One time I was driving along a road going down on a preaching mission rather early in the morning and it was foggy the car in front of me stopped and of course i did too i didn't want to move that car if i would move it backward i wouldn't know what to do i wouldn't dare turn around this man because i wouldn't know what was coming i trembled at being at the the point of having stopped there i was in the midst of impending calamity and so when you begin to explore the logical consequences of some of these theories that have been told us on good faith, I saw a tremendous impending calamity to my whole faith, and I didn't dare touch it for many years. But I said before the Lord that some of these things cannot be true. It cannot be true that you'll ruin your faith if you reason with God. That is absolutely illogical. It cannot be true that the more intelligence you get in the things of God, the less faith you're going to have. And the less intelligence you are, the more faith you can have. That is to speak in reverse. And so the very thought, laid embedded in my mind that the truth of God must be a lovely and a glorious thing. If the avenue of intelligence that's truly biblical now is going to lead us astray then we're faced with some problems either the Bible is not the word of God but is man's evolution toward God and therefore we've got the suspicion and way all that we read to see whether we're going to accept it as God's truth or not or if it is God's truth it puts God in a predicament for god obviously knows more than all the mass of humanity put together as we have mentioned again and again a corporation functions by a multiplicity of mental experience and understanding and if we take the uh, mass knowledge that exists in the experiences of all its members we would have a tremendous accumulation of understanding And of course it's the problem of the executive to feel out what exists in his organization and to see how far he can trust each individual and to capitalize to the best of his ability on what exists in the organization think of the mental accomplishments think of the accumulation well if that be uh, a great thing think of the accumulation of mentality on atomic energy you know how the government proposed to exploit this by assigning problems to each uh, institution and research staff without giving them the unfolding of the relation of their problem to other problems. And so you had extensive research being conducted in the very mysteries of science in various parts of America. Think of the accumulation of all of that. Add up the all the mentality of every individual in this country, and then in the world think of that but after we have added all that up it's hardly a drop in the bucket compared to god's intelligence Amen. now i submit to you the illogical approach i heard a man say a leader very prominent leader said he didn't want theology he wanted Christ of course that was a twofold confession it was a confession that he didn't understand what theology was because all it is is the true science concerning God and concerning man concerning the person of Christ the incarnation the whole uh, work of the Lord the plan of redemption uh, what man has to do what sin has done to man what it is how he has to forsake it how he's forgiven how he's saved how he's restored to God how he's to continue through this life all that we simply understand as the elements of theology which simply means what's true concerning god and man's relation to god and then the second place that was an acknowledgement that he hadn't been able to establish an understandable presentation of the main facts of god and the main facts of man and the main facts of redemption so rather than wrestle with the question he was disposed to throw all of this to the wind and simply talk about an experiential relationship with God. Some of you have been studying neo-Orthodoxism or the neo-Orthodox movement that's been so prominent in the recent decades. You can see how that will be furthered by this concept because if biblical truth is not established on comprehension of facts, then anybody can come along and offer a direct uh, experience of some kind with the great uh, God somewhere in the heavens and get by with it. But if by the grace of God we can establish the elements of God's truth and then enter into an experience based on those elements of truth, then we are safeguarded from perversion. So this matter of uh, retributive justice as applied to God has tremendous consequences. It robs the gospel of its true power. Because if God the Father is not satisfied to save anyone except his strict, retributive, personal indignation or reaction or individual justice has been satisfied, then where is the place for that moving picture that Jesus set forth in that parable, where the king was moved with compassion and forgave them their sin. It puts the gospel on the cold, calculating basis that is so common. So people are not uh, illogical in what's going on. It's simply the fruit of what has gone on. And those of us who've been in touch with evangelical movement for a number of years have seen this movement to take on this character and it was a very noble battle we have liberalism or modernism coming in at the turn of this century having captivated our main institutions in the last part of the last but here we have this fruit of preachers coming into america during the teens of this century, sowing seeds of doubt on the Word of God. That goes back to religious evolution. Why, if Darwinianism is right and that the material realm evolved, well, certainly the moral and the spiritual realm must also have evolved. And if that be so, we can't tolerate any more uh, mental suppression to truth. Just like a A prominent lawyer lectured at Northwestern, I just noticed in yesterday's paper, and he uh, lectured to the theological students that they were not in our age going forth with the idea that they knew something and others did not know that something. In other words, that they did not have an authoritative message to go forth with. But they were to go forth and merely reason with the people on their level. And so the battle of the early part of this century became a battle as to whether the Bible was the word of God or not. Not so much as to what is the intelligent interpretation of the details of the Bible as related to salvation. As we study church history, we see that the church has been engaged in different subjects at different times. I've mentioned in the 1830s and 20s and on through there, they discussed the nature of the will and the nature of depravity as to whether the will was free or not, as to what sin did with the will. And here was a great turnover. You examine the uh, publications of Yale University and some of the uh, technical journals that were going on. You'll find uh, this discussion uh, carried forth continuously and so the battle has been is the bible the word of god that was a very noble battle because if it isn't the word of god then where shall we go we're like peter to whom shall we go if we do not have a standard of truth then to whom shall we go and so it was a very noble battle that contended for the word of god as an inspiration from the heart of god as men were moved by the holy ghost but as to just what was the various uh, presentations of the truth of salvation and the nature of the atonement i ask you how many intelligent presentations of truth do you read in the last 25 years or so what are they doing for the most part reprinting all the greater theological works, sadly enough, on one side of the theological fence. And the younger students come in and don't know any better. They think that represents the bona fide expression of truth that the church has maintained down through the centuries. And unless they get an awful jolt and begin to dig for themselves at great cost and sacrifice, such will be the case. And so we're happy that in the last 10, 15 years, theological leaders have been wondering what's wrong. I attended an evangelist conference at Winona Lake in 46, I guess it was. And there they were discussing, some of the more sober of America's evangelists, why they didn't have in our day the penetrating Christian experiences that they read about in revival history. But as I recollect, None of them uh, said that there might be something radically wrong in our concept of salvation. But at least there has been an awakening that things might not be just as they appear. It is of vital importance. I know of nothing of greater importance. I know of nothing of greater uh, justice to God than to understand what he's talking about in this verse we have read, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. What is meant by the statement that he might be just? The common idea, as I have said, is that God the Father might exercise his strict retributive justice it is dreadful to think about but the father is supposed to have extracted from the son in his punishment the exact calculated eternal doom of somebody so that god the father is strictly, retributively just when he justifies the believer. That's why the whole concept of how to get saved has come to be as it is. That's why you have dry-eyed religion, which is allowed to flourish. All you've got to do, they say, is to come up and accept salvation except what's been paid for they say you see here is a kind of a technical bargain here is not some begging for mercy here is a salvation based on retributive exact calculated justice. And if the Bible didn't say so much about repentance, I'm afraid very few of our leading preachers would mention it because they have no theological place for it. And it's just because the Bible is so insistent and bothersome on this subject that many are pressed to speak upon it. Now you can see very quickly souls are saved on the basis of strict and exact and calculated justice that they must be so saved on what has been done before we were born. No one pretends that Christ is now suffering in the atonement. We read in Hebrews, for example, that he once bore the sins of the world. So whatever the Lord has done, he has done. Whatever then is paid for, is paid for. God is not going to be so unjust as to extract penalty twice. has extracted absolute, calculated penalty once, somebody is going to be free from a second visitation of penalty. And so if you're going to be consistent on this theory, got to be a right. you have two options. And if you study theological history of the last century when there was a multitude of greater intelligence bestowed on the realm of theology than there is today, you look in vain for a leading theologian of America who would dare to say what they're saying on every hand in our day. Here was the camp of Charles Hodge old school presbyterianism old school congregationalism the reaction against revivalism with headquarters in princeton he put out his three volumes on systematic theology and his single volume on the atonement there he specifically says that the atonement was made to the retributive justice of god the father And, of course, was only made for the elect. The atonement was not made for all men. Of course, he has a little difficulty with some of the plain passages of the Word of God that have always rescued this theory. So if the atonement was made, now think through, if the atonement was made to the exact Retributive justice of God and all atonement that ever is going to be made has been made, then you have two alternatives. But you're really forced into one. If the Lord Jesus tasted death for all men in the same sense as the Bible affirms, then the universalists who traveled through New England. And you remember one of them came to the pastorate of George Gill. And Finney was called to answer it in desperation. So if the Lord Jesus died for all men, then all men are going to be saved. And no denying the fact. No escapism. This is either true or it isn't true. But I say we're driven out of that alternative because the ball back fact faces all of us in, our, in the least bit of uh, rays of common sense that all men are not being saved. <laughs> so the only consistent position is that the Lord died for the elect. And that was the thing that hit me as a stone wall and broke my theological heart. As a noble, well-meaning professor, admonished me as a young man not to get excited. Don't worry about these complications. Others have faced them before you. Citing himself that he faced these complications and still had his faith, and that although you might be in a shuffle yet you'll come out all right but he didn't tell me how so then from these facts we may positively assert truth we may begin with the proof and evidence which we shouldn't need to take time to side here that the scriptures make it plain that the Lord Jesus died for the sins of the whole world in the same sense. And when that conclusion dawned upon my mind, not easily, because I was greatly encumbered, I felt a new power and a new pulse, but I didn't know what the atonement of the Lord did if it wasn't retributive then what was it And my mind was kind of cut out at sea just what did he do that we might be saved in what sense was god just and at the same time the justifier or the forgiver starting then with the declaration that the atonement of christ was made for all men and it's wonderful that we have such an outstanding passage as 1 John 2.2, that he is the propitiation for our sins. Here we have the deepest word involved in the the description of the atonement. And he's not only the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now we need to go out and wring that to the theological embarrassment of any who want to take such embarrassment. So we start with that as the glorious fact i have been thrilled and have tried to excavate wherever i have seen the evidence of a group of thinking men begin to pray and seek the understanding of the word of god on the atonement of christ and to see the wonderful sprouts of revival that have come all over i told you about benjamin randall 1780 in New England. He went to hear Whitfield preach. His last sermon, it turned out to be. Just out of curiosity, he was a nice church man. And that was the extent of it. Then Whitfield died and the Spirit of God came over him in his nice church sanity. He says, Whitfield is dead and I'm on my way to hell. That's what theology did for him. And he took his bible went out into a cornfield and wrestled with god as to why he had to be involved in all these complications and according to his own testimony god gave him such a satisfying conviction of the universality of the atonement of the lord jesus christ that it transformed his life he started through new england to herald the glorious event that the lord jesus tasted death for every man in the same sense now if you've been theologically exposed you've heard these escapisms all it is is an escapism you've heard the play on words sufficient and efficient And so they say, when they have no more to say, that the atonement of Christ was sufficient for all. Just what they mean, I've never been able to discern. But then they say that the atonement of Christ is efficient to the elect. And I heard one prominent preacher very gravely object to what he called the indefinite atonement. In his concept, atonement meant retribution. We start out then with the declaration that the Lord Jesus died for the sins of the whole world in the same sense. We face our observations and the testimony of the Bible and we see that all men are not being saved or are not being affected by the atonement. There is only one answer. The Lord Jesus, by his death, did not guarantee the salvation of anybody, but made possible the salvation of all. So then, retributive justice must part from our thinking, and I have no tears. To remember when that departed from my thinking. I think I walked around some of the blocks in Berwyn with a new spring in my step. God became a new God. Amen. I was freed from the complication of the Trinity. Or, please tell me. If the Father insisted upon retributive justice, how come the Son didn't insist on retributive justice? And also the Holy Spirit. These are persons of the Godhead. And if one would insist on retributive justice and the Lord Jesus would be a greater friend to us than the Father is, is that not the, the presentation? I think of many hymns that I have sung in the past that make me shiver as I think of them. The idea is that God is the exalted, austere dignity who leans on the side of strict justice, not only leans that way, but insists on it. And that the Lord Jesus became kinder than the Father and took our side and manifested something that the Father didn't have, and in that way, a brought us to the father leaving the concept that jesus loves us more than the father and that is totally and absolutely unjust and it's totally and absolutely absurd the word of god says that god so loved the world that he gave and i say when it dawned upon my heart that God the Father loved me just as much as the Lord Jesus. And that God the Father's heart was broken when he had to separate himself from the Son in that dark hour. The very thought that God the Father separated himself from the blessed Son on the cross because he was extracting his calculated retributive justice is so offensive to everything that springs up in my mind as to cause a repulsion to come up against the testimony of the bible if that would be so and don't you think that this repulsion comes up in in minds of multitudes? why is it if you want to go to the city of rochester new york and look there on the boulder of the second presbyterian church great big a block structure It says in memory of Charles Grandison Finney, whose labors in this city, giving the three dates, something like 1836 and 42 and 56, left a permanent impression on the leading citizens of this community. And if you go there and read What happened when that great revival broke, when 100,000 or so were converted in and around Rochester, you'll find that the courts caught up with all their business and didn't need all the uh, judges that they formerly had, that the taverns and the playhouses were pretty well closed down. Now I ask you, why did that happen? Because the truth of God so grappled with the leading citizens of that community that they became intelligently and consumingly converted one of the at the first revival there they objected to finney and they didn't attend his meetings in mass it was a great law center and they regretted it and i have photocopied a document sent to Finney, signed by a number of these leading jurists asking him if he would kindly come sometime to the city of rochester and deliver a series of lectures adapted to their needs now there happened to be a very humble revivalist who also came to the city of rochester and that was a very good thing because no one church would hold all the folk who might be influenced by the things of god and finney during this time in a particular way had come there to answer the objections of these thinking attorneys and physicians and school teachers. And so the audience became divided, and the church where this other evangelist was laboring became filled with the common ordinary folk. And the that left room at the other place where Brother Finney was to seat all of the thinking mass of people of Rochester, And so he began with a very forceful presentation. He said, There's no need that we begin with the Bible. Let us think together on the facts that are before us. Night after night, therefore, he wrestled with their minds over great truths, especially the truth of the moral government of god and the implications of salvation he told them if we don't need the bible we won't refer to it but if we find we do need the bible in the process of our thinking then let's bring it out and see whether it's in line with what we're talking about and whether it will lead us on further how wonderful it is to read of what happened in that intelligent congregation who met night after night. What was it? Do you suppose it was the idea that God the Father was saving souls by retributive justice? That was the very thing that these jurors were trying to get rid of. They're trying to get rid of the idea of personal reaction to sin. Here's our good brother here. Been all these years in this penal institution, preaching the gospel, in contact with the processes of government. Seeing these jurors wrestle in their mind, and these uh, judicial experts are trying to decide on what course to take. He's seen many no doubt like Darius who would like to get Daniel out of the scrape and yet they didn't dare for the consequences. It becomes clear from the word of God that the atonement cannot be a retributive justice process. What then are God's problems in the salvation of souls? Here Brother Finney brings into the discussion the word public justice. Not private justice, but public justice. And here, the thought of law really ascends to glorious heights. Our lawyers spend years going through multitudes and multitudes of cases trying to establish in their mind a balance of how to achieve public justice. They're trying to get wise as to when to lean to mercy and when to lean to punishment. What are they trying to achieve? Well, they have some lovely theories. And here's Blackstone over in England. It was centuries ago that laid a foundation of thinking, and of course that sprang from the Bible. And so they extolled very highly the happiness of the community, or the protection of the community from evil. And they set up the idea of the nobility of sacrificing personal, retributive, vindictive justice and if a judge is sincere he's trying to neutralize his mind over the whole question of personal reaction here they are trying to find some jurors for this murder trial they've had a big task because they found a lot of folks whose minds were made up and if their minds were already made up how could they give an honest hearing to a situation like this and so public justice relates to the happiness of the community the height of the punishment of offenders basically is not to reform the offender that's the delusion that's come into our age and seeks to eliminate capital punishment because they think that that the the height of justice has only the obligation of of reforming or recovering the individual who committed the crime and they get into that state because they departed from the bible as the word of the living god god affirms that the purpose of punishment is to prevent disobedience in other Individuals and citizens of the community. So the purpose of punishment, penalty, inconvenience, or what you may call it, is to set a public example as to what happens upon the commission of certain events. Why do we have this rampage going on in our land? Because as the criminals walk out of prison, and as they walk out of emotional courtrooms, the criminals' extent say, well, they got away with it, I stand a high chance of doing the same. But if penalty was really held where God has placed it, it would quickly remedy the whole malady that exists in our day. The purpose then of...